From Gimlet, I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is Without Fail, the show where I talk with artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both. Behind every great country song is a country song writer. And the man behind some of today's biggest hits in country music is my guest on the show today, Shane McAnally. He's written number one hits for some of country music's biggest stars, Keith Urban, Miranda Lambert, Kenny Chesney. His specialty, songs evoking boozy late nights when the bar is about to close, bad decisions are about to get made. It's a genre that's been called booty call noir. Which I've made up such a career out of, I have no idea what my affinity for that is. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> had so many <laughs> hits that way, and I still write them. I mean, it's funny, I'll joke with people, we'll go down that road, and I'll be like, well, here we are again. <laughs> <laughs> I talked with Shane about how he ended up where he is today, at the top of the country music world. And he told me there are many aspects of his life today that he could not have imagined as a kid, that very well might have terrified him, in fact. Which is funny, because... In many ways, he'd been dreaming of the exact kind of success he's enjoying today since he was a very young kid growing up in Texas. My grandmother and my mother owned a clothing store in my hometown of Mineral Wells, Texas, a, a, a store called Foxy Jeans, and they sold blue jeans. And um, I would go there after school and would walk the uh, perimeter of the parking lot which was also the Walmart parking lot. Uh -huh. um, and I, because their store was across the parking lot. Oof, that sounds rough. Yeah. And it went out of business because of Walmart eventually. Um, but I would just walk the perimeter of this parking lot and write songs. I mean, I would say I was probably 10 years old. And I didn't really know that's what I was doing. I know that sounds probably strange, but I was just sort of, at first, what would start is I would put lyrics in melodies of songs I already knew. Um, really, it was about what I thought these songs were supposed to be about. I, I loved country music. Everybody listened to country music there. What What was it? Do you remember any of the songs that you made up when you were nine or ten? <laughs> yes, actually, I wish I had answered uh, it with a lie because I know what's coming next. Um, <laughs> you know, I can remember the whole chorus of a song that, the only reason it embarrasses me is because it sounds so adult. <laughs> but the reason I was, I was basically just imitating songs I knew, uh -huh. but it was an original song. And the song was called Every Night. And I can remember the melody and everything. And it was like, every night I think of you and all the things we used to do. All the good times that we shared, all the moments that we cared for each other through and through. Girl, I sure miss you. And every night those memories come riding through. Now, I wrote that at <gasps> 10 years old. <laughs> and it, I know that it sounds like it was, maybe not an accomplished songwriter wrote it, but it sounds like someone older than 10. You know, I still got how to put it together, which is, you know, yeah. is really, it's strange, really. When you would sing sing those songs to your mom, what, what would she? I mean, what would she say? I think she was probably less impressed than like you and I are now with that, <laughs> <laughs> because it just didn't make any sense to her. First of all, you have to realize my mother at that time, when I was ten years old, 
My mom was 27. Right. And my mom and I sort of grew up together. Ultimately, my dad um, had some some pretty bad problems with the law and ended up going to prison for a while. And, you know, it was my mom and, and me and my sister. And uh, I still, I look back in a lot of things that I maybe held my mom to a higher standard than really anyone should have someone her age and in her situation. She was working three jobs and just trying to keep, literally keep food on the table. And um, so I don't know if she even had the capacity uh, to understand what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, it was more like, oh, that's really cool. Like, where did you learn that? I think she also thought I was probably singing someone else's song. Right. It'd be nice though. I mean, it must have been, I, I imagine on some level, it, I mean, having, having your child sing to you <laughs> a pretty song. That was, yeah. That, oh, that, she was super nice. proud. And <laughs> and ultimately, you know, when I was like 13, uh -huh. um, she sought out someone that would take me in the studio and let me record songs I had written. Uh -huh. um, it, it was, w w the ultimate goal was to make me a star to so I could sing these songs because we thought that was the, you know, the only sort of, career path we saw for me was like, oh, you could be George Strait. Um, mm -hmm. And little did we know, George Strait didn't write his songs. Mm -hmm. um, and little did we know I wasn't straight. <laughs> that really was a curveball. <laughs> so when you said little did we know, did, yeah. did you know? No. No. You know, it just wasn't... I had feelings thoughts that, you know, when I guess anybody's going into puberty as a teenager, but they're so confusing that I just assumed that that was just what everyone was thinking. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess I didn't because the, the truth is I knew not to tell anyone. So I just didn't know what it was. And I used to pray that, you know, I would find a wife and I guess I prayed not to be gay, mm -hmm. uh, but I think I, even praying for that specifically was so scary because that would be admitting to myself that I was. So Shane kept those thoughts, those feelings to himself, and he threw himself into showbiz, started performing around Texas and Oklahoma at local country music shows and what was called the Opry Circuit. And when he was 15, Shane's mom sent an audition tape to what I guess you'd call the American Idol of the 1980s and 90s. It was a TV show called Star Search. Star Search liked his tape, and eventually they invited him to perform in front of a live studio audience in Los Angeles. Star Search was pretty much the biggest thing you could do. Um, and it was Ed McMahon who was, <laughs> uh, I always think of him as the publishing clearinghouse guy who <laughs> right. would give these big checks to people on TV. But he hosted, and um, and you would compete against one person, and and there was a winner each week. And then, like, whoever won went on to the next week. Uh-huh. And how are you feeling? I thought that was the break. You know, I really thought, um, I'm going to go on the show. And now you have to imagine at this point, I'm 15 years old. My dad is in prison. I live in a small town with my mom who's working constantly and my little sister. And we're barely hanging on. And I, this was what I was waiting for. I was going to get to fix everything. So that's what I was thinking. 
there, it was a lot of pressure looking back to put, you know, on myself because I really thought it was my job to sort of get us out of that situation. Hmm. So, so you're thinking like, okay, this is my big break. I'm going to go. And then what did success look like to you in your imagination? Like, what did that successful you look like? Uh, I would be on the Country Music Awards. That was sort of the pinnacle for me. That was the only thing I knew is that I would go to Nashville and I would get a record deal, make a record, and win Entertainer of the Year at the CMAs. That's it. <laughs> wow. That's a lot of um, hopes and dreams and pressure sort of all on, all <laughs> on this one appearance. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So you go out to L- L.A.? Is that where Star Search is, right? Yeah. And what, what happened? Well, um, we got there and there, the hotel was right in West Hollywood, actually. Uh-huh. And I remember walking, like with my mom, we got there one day, we were going to tape the next day. And um, I remember us walking to a grocery store to get some food for the hotel room. And it was the first time I had ever seen anything gay. Um, We walked by a few bars in the daytime and there were people in there. And it wasn't like anybody was kissing or anything like that. Because this was, you know, this was late 80s. And... um, we didn't see anything like that, but I could just, it was just different. Like the guys looked at me different and that sort of put a real fear in me. Um, I think that's when I first realized like, oh shit, I better not be thinking about this. And that I probably went into hyper prayer. But I just remember that moment of like making eye contact with someone and thinking, oh, like this is... This is something else. And my mom didn't notice it or think anything about it. Yeah, But you're um, like, I'm feeling things that I don't want to feel. That's right. That's right. But then we went back to the hotel, whatever, with our food. The next day we taped. Um, what I remember about the taping was that um, my mom had had this outfit made for me that was like green suede with like these long fringe pieces on it and rhinestones. It was... I looked like Glenn Campbell on crack. I mean, and it wasn't, it was not of the moment. Um, <laughs> and she had these boots dyed to match the jacket. Oh my God. And when we went to tape, my, um, my mom went out to the audience and it was about to be my turn. And I had heard the girl that, w- that I was going to be against because in the teen category, boys and girls were against each other. And mm-hmm. I heard her practicing and she, in my mind, she was Whitney Houston. She was the best singer I'd ever heard. And I was already, like, defeated before I even competed. Oh. And um, I just looked at myself in the mirror, and I was like, this looks like a clown. <laughs> so the only thing I could think to fix it was to not wear those boots that match because it was like door stops or, or like a bookend on my, you know, my jacket and my boots. It just looked ridiculous. So I changed into these black plain cowboy boots and then went out did my song the mo- I mean my heart starts beating fast talking about it it I've never felt scared like that I, I don't even know how I did it I can remember Ed McMahon saying my name and then it was just uh, the rest is a blur I just I know I didn't win and when I didn't win I walked off stage they literally take you out into the alley right away put you in a bus because if you don't win 
they take you back to the hotel and you get on an airplane. If you do win, you stay there and they do another episode right away. So um, I went back to the alley and they were bringing my mom around. And, you know, I guess my mom was so disappointed too that she couldn't even, you know, what she said was, <laughs> wear those boots that I died to match your jacket. <laughs> we, I mean, my mom had a lot of dreams pinned on me as well. Wow. God, that sounds so dismal. <laughs> it was awful. You know, and what's, to be honest with you, I didn't, I couldn't watch that for years. I couldn't find the humor in it. I was so sad for that kid. You know, I just, I know how much it meant to him. I was a gay kid in a small town in Texas, and even though I hadn't come out or even admitted to myself, it was hard for me. You know, I, I, I played music and wanted to do a lot of things that guys in Texas didn't do. Yeah. And I know that being on Star Search is not that dramatic, um, but it was to me at that age. Yeah. So you come back to Texas, all the dreams that you have pinned on this show are now dashed. Right. Um, and you are now struggling with your sexual identity and your your family is like sort of just just making ends meet. What are you thinking? What's your next move then? Well, I was still playing the Opry circuit, um, mm -hmm. but not as much. I was then getting into more of, you know, look, I had a car and um, I'm actually very popular in high school. Uh, I really knew how to to play the game that people wanted me to play. Mm -hmm. I had a great group of friends that I'm still friends with. They know me different now. But, uh, you know, then I was doing what you're supposed to do. Uh -huh. And it really mattered to me to be popular. I right. wanted to be class president. You know, I wanted to be... Like, popularity contests strangely really mattered to me. Mm -hmm. And it's somewhat embarrassing to say that, but now far enough away from it to say I really pinned a lot of my validation on stuff like that. Right. Were, were you, like, prom king popular? Like, were you, yeah. were you the prom king? Uh, no, I wasn't, but I was like most handsome that year and the class president. And I was always some form of it. I was in the court and all that stuff. Yeah. You dated the cheerleaders. Even my, cheer my high school girlfriend was the head cheerleader. Yeah. And so, yeah, all that. <laughs> do you ever, do you ever think, this is a crazy thought, but maybe you think it, do you ever think to yourself, like if you had just been a straight version of yourself, like how intolerable you'd be right now? Oh, uh, I think of that all the time. No joke. <laughs> Um, I would have been so many times over-divorced. I would have probably children everywhere. Um, yes, 100%. Throughout high school, Shane stayed on the popular guy path. When he graduated, he went to the University of Texas, where he joined a fraternity, kept dating women. In college, he also told himself it was time to get serious, give up this dream of a career in music. He settled instead on something more sensible, became an accounting major. But he couldn't ever quite kick the music dream. He kept writing songs on the side. And when spring break rolled around his freshman year, he talked a few of his fraternity brothers into taking a road trip with him to Nashville. They drove with me in my grandmother's van to Nashville. Mm -hmm. And we had no plan. But I would just sit around the fraternity house and sing songs. So they were like, yeah, we'll do this. We'll go see how you make it. And so... 
we went to Nashville and went to the Bluebird Cafe because that was something I'd heard of. And the Bluebird is this very is a very popular like open mic kind of place in in Nashville. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. it was in this little strip mall, and I, that was the only thing I knew to do was go there. And we went there. And I could go in there and put my name in a hat for an open mic night. And, you know, there were way too many people to actually perform. Mm-hmm. Um, but my name got drawn. And it was the first time I'd ever sang a song I wrote in front of like-minded people. It was a room full of songwriters. Mm-hmm. And it was... What song did you perform? I, pl- I played a song called Long Walk Home, which was about these two kids at school. And he says to her, can I walk you home? And she says, well, it's a long walk home. And then later they when they get married, that for some reason they have a breakup or something. And he comes to her and says, I really want to get back together. And she says, it's a long walk home. Oh, nice. That's yeah. good. So, yeah. you know, that old that old country twist. <laughs> um, you got to use it multiple ways. But anyway, uh, so I sang that song. It got a good response. Um, like, you know, applause and things. But it's a small room, but you could just tell the difference between other people that got up there. Or maybe that was in my head and it was enough to just make me want to stay because it was a room full of people like me that were there writing songs and this was their first opportunity to play them in front of people. And so we went back to Texas and I failed all my classes that semester. And it was because all I did after that was just write songs. I was just eaten up with it. I couldn't even go to class. And uh, I went home after that, and just told my mom, you know, that I was just going to Nashville. And, I, you know, she she didn't want me to, just because I think just the fear of, obviously, of me not making it. And so, just a year after deciding to embark on a sensible career in accounting, Shane abandoned that plan, and at the age of 19, dropped out of school altogether and moved to Nashville. He started performing around town, hoping to land a record deal, and working side jobs to make ends meet. So I went and got a bartending job. Um, I don't even know how I was doing that at 19. I don't know what the rules are, but um, I would bartend every time something fell apart. I would just go back to, you know, the service industry. It was always there. And um, I worked at a Bennigan's that I don't even think they have anymore. <laughs> I remember Ben again. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's what I was doing. I still have friends that I worked with at Benigan's that are good friends now. I think, gosh, secretly they surely were all going, oh my God, if we have to go to one more of his shows. You know, I would just beat people up about like, I'm doing a show and, you know, and in this bar or whatever, but I don't know. Huh. And, and at this point, what is your social life like? And are you dating people? And who, actually who are met, you dating? I actually met a girl um, at the University of Texas. And we started dating. And we, ultimately, she moved to Nashville. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened when she moved to Nashville was that the the time ticking on my sexuality or, or the the gray area started to not be so gray. Right. It started to be like a time bomb. Like, oh my God, she's coming here and she's going to expect that we're going to get married. And, um, and so I told her and at first it was awful. And, you know, we had a period of time where we didn't speak and she had her own place in Nashville. And then 
what happened was she came back around and was like, the truth is you are my best friend. And she said, but I know what your dream is to be a country music singer. And I know that this lifestyle would not, they wouldn't support that. You know, the country music audience, the record labels, the people that I needed to impress. And and I got to say, that was a conclusion we both knew of. I mean, we weren't, you know, she was just basically saying, I know you're not going to come out if you want to be a country music star. So she kind of, she was like a beard. Um, and everyone thought we were together, which was one of the most... Uh, gracious, um, un, you know, selfish things anyone has ever done. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, so, this is 94 Nashville. Eventually you get a deal with, uh, eventually it works, basically, or sort of works. You get, you, you, you're, you're making introductions, et cetera, and you get a deal with Curb Records. Yeah. And at that time, Curb Records was the hottest label. I mean, the, their roster was just impeccable. It was really where everyone um, wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And then I started working on a record and, you know, meeting producers and I was just writing songs for the record. And I just really thought that it was going to just go exactly the way I had planned it. Now, mind you, I'm secretly in the closet. I have a boyfriend and I have a public girlfriend. Um, and it, I see that now as such a mess. Right. But at the time, it just seemed like right on track. Like, I'm just going to make this record. <laughs> I'm going to live my secret life. Yeah. My secret private life. And I'm going to be a country music star. Yeah. That was the plan anyway. What actually happened, that's coming up after the break. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with songwriter Shane McAnally. Shane had landed a record deal in Nashville on the prestigious label Curb Records. His first single dropped in 1999, a song called Say Anything. In the music video for Say Anything, you see Shane dancing around in a blue button-up shirt and black jeans with a crowd of extras. And of course, any video from the 90s, it'll feel dated. But there's something about this one that just doesn't feel true. The video, but also the song, the performance, I couldn't help noticing it. And country music fans in the late 90s, they noticed it too. Shane's debut album flopped. He had three singles. None of them made it very high on the charts. And his chances of making it as a country music star seemed to vanish. Shane was devastated. Professionally, it was a huge blow. But also, he was struggling more and more with living his double life. I was really depressed. I was in therapy. I wouldn't even tell the therapist I was gay. Um, I was so scared. And I would stay in bed a lot. I got... Uh, really heavy. I gained a lot of weight. Um, clearly, it was a, it was really hard on me, um, and it lasted for a that lasted for a long time. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, suppressing all of this stuff for this career that wasn't happening, and so that was, you know, sickening. I mean, literally sickening. I was sick, you know, and I. Um, Ultimately, after that record came out and after we worked a couple singles for a couple years, at this point, we're into like 99, 2000. And I, um, I went out to Los Angeles. My publicist at the time had a place in West Hollywood and 
I just went out there to spend a week, like just get away from everything. And uh, I stayed for eight years. So, so wait, I, let, me, let me go back to the beginning here. So, so, yeah. so, in, so, so you go out to L.A. and you're supposed to be there for a, a week. What was the moment where, when, you know, that week turned into eight years? Well, the week went by and then I was, she was, my publicist was a friend and she was going back and forth from Nashville. And after a week, I was like, I need to find another place because I want to stay longer. And she was like, oh, I'm not coming back for a while. You can stay there for two months. So I stayed there for two more months. And that was after that was when I was like, I'm not leaving, you know. And that that time period, you know, is where the least happened for me. Nothing career-wise that I could point to. But everything personally, uh, you know, I um, I started working at a bar in West Hollywood. I would see gay people openly interacting with each other. That was just mind-blowing to me. Mm-hmm. And it was very liberating being a bartender in West Hollywood and not wearing a shirt behind the bar and getting all that attention. I, I mean, look, I was a good-looking guy. I had never gotten attention like that. And, you know, it, it probably went back to me just wanting to be popular, and I was. You were like the popular kid again, like you were in high school, but this time, yeah, like, the gay twenty-something version of that. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was doing in West Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Just the version yeah, you honestly, always wanted to be. <laughs> in my mind, that is what um, working at a a big dance club on Santa Monica in West Hollywood, and then like after your shift is over, going out in any bar you want to go to, you don't have to wait in line and. Mm-hmm. People give you drugs, and yeah, it's kind of like that's as close to being a celebrity in that world I could be. Right. So at, at this point, we'll call it the, the 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 gay prom king period of your life. Perfect. I love that. Um, did wh- are you? What's your relationship like with your with your folks? Are are you out to your parents at this point? Yeah, I came out to my mom uh, during that time, um, and uh, it wasn't great. She loved me unconditionally, but she blamed anyone that I was with for me being gay. Mm -hmm. And um, definitely thought I was just confused and that it would change. And she was mostly scared because she knew at the root of everything, I wanted to be a country music songwriter or singer. And her thought was, if you're gay, you can't do that. And I think that was what the biggest heartbreak and hurdle for her to get over was. Right. Did you think that that was going to be her reaction or were you were you surprised and, and saddened by it? No, or? I knew it would be bad. Um, yeah. Because there were so many indicators before that that I was gay that she would not look at. And so because she had so obviously turned a blind eye to it, I realized it was going to be a hard thing. But, you know, when she was finally coming around a few years after... You know, we were joking, and I said, I mean, Mom, how did you not know I was gay? And she was like, why would I know? And I said, I mean, I love Bette Midler. And she goes, who doesn't? <laughs> straight men, Mom. Every, I said, straight every man. straight Don't guy. <laughs> she goes, well, I didn't realize that. I didn't know that that was a gay thing. <laughs> she goes, I love Bette Midler. <laughs> <laughs> so... 
Slowly but surely, Shane was embracing his true identity. But there was a dark side to his life in L.A. as well. He was playing the odd gig around town, but his music career wasn't going anywhere. He'd gotten deep into drugs and alcohol and eventually went into rehab to get sober. And money was tight. Then, in 2007, things took another turn for the worse. I bought a place in L.A. in 2007 uh, because I got this short-lived publishing deal from this big investor who um, knew nothing about music but just had a lot of money Mm -hmm. and paid me a really good salary to write songs. And so I went and bought a place in West Hollywood. And six months later, I couldn't make the payment. And I would get notices and people would call you all the time. But I had no intention of paying because I didn't have the money. It was, you were waiting on people to knock on your door. Ultimately, that's no joke. My stuff was boxed up. I got everything except my bed um, ready to go. And that was the absolute rock bottom. It really was like, what have I done with my life? I'm 33 at that point. And um, and then I met my would-be husband right at the end of all that. And what happened was I met him in Palm Springs. Um, he was from Atlanta. Uh-huh. And um, he came to my place and saw that all my stuff was boxed up, and he, he wanted to know why. And he knew that I didn't have a car. And he actually helped me get through a lot of that. Uh, Wait, you brought this he, guy home to your house where all your stuff was boxed up? Um, yeah, he came over while he was in L.A., and all my stuff was boxed up. And for some reason, I didn't care that he saw that. That I had never dated anyone that I didn't put on a show for. It's like I couldn't keep any of that a secret. And, you know, I had, I, there was no front I could keep. So there Shane was, 33 years old, about to get kicked out of his house, starting a relationship with a guy who lived on the opposite coast. And it was right around this time that one of Shane's friends called and said, you know what? I think you should take a trip back to Nashville. I have an idea for you. The friend's idea was that he wanted to put Shane in touch with an established songwriter in town, a woman named Erin Enderlin. The friend thought that Shane and Aaron would be good songwriting partners, would work well together. So Shane got on a plane and headed to Nashville to meet up with Aaron. She wrote at Universal Publishing, which there was a room there for writers. There were multiple rooms. Mm-hmm. And she reserved a room and we were on the books to write at like 10 a.m. at Universal Publishing. And I went up there with my guitar and met her. And we sat down in this room and we worked on a song all day and eventually ended up writing a song called Last Call. And uh, basically it was just about a guy calling at the end of the night because he's drunk and using the play on words of, it was Last Call and I'm always your last call. Mm-hmm. Um, you know... I knew country music well enough to know we had written something really special. I was like, oh, this is something here, you know. Can can you can you just sing a a few bars of it just so we know how it's Yeah, it was like, I bet you're in a bar listening to a cheating song. Glass of Johnny Walker Red, um, with no one to take you home. Uh, they're probably closing down, saying no more alcohol. Yeah, I bet you're in a bar. And uh, it ended up getting recorded by Leanne Womack. When was the first time you heard her version of it? I I was over at a friend's place, and I was sleeping on his couch, and someone emailed it to me. Um, 
in the morning, it was very early, and uh, I got up and put headphones on and sat on the couch and listened to it, and it made me cry, and the thought of it makes me cry because Leanne Womack is my favorite singer and was all through. The first time I heard her was in 98, and she's the greatest country singer I think that's ever lived. I, I love her, and I wrote so many songs with her in my mind. And so the fact that th she was the first, um, it just always m meant such a huge deal to me. What did it mean? I just felt like, for me, that it, I was on the right track. Like, oh, okay, I put all this into motion. I've been uh, writing for her, praying for this. I felt like God was on my side now, like that he had heard everything I had asked for and that maybe it didn't look the way I thought it was going to, but that he had a plan all along. And that's just what I had to believe. It was my version of God and that I had a, a bigger story, you know, than the one that I had been telling myself for a long time. Coming up, Shane moves back to Nashville full-time and does something he'd been afraid to do for a while. He comes out to the country music industry. That's after the break. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Shane McAnally. After losing his house in Los Angeles, Shane finally caught a break when he landed a big single on a Leanne Womack record. It was enough for Shane to get taken seriously as a songwriter in Nashville. And so in 2008, he decided to move back there full-time and try a second time to make it in country music. This time not as a performer, singing and performing the songs himself, but as a songwriter, writing songs that other people would perform. And it was starting to feel like things were finally coming together. He had some money coming in from Last Call. He was living closer to his boyfriend, Michael. But he was still in the closet in Nashville. I came back thinking I had sort of pulled off the great Houdini by leaving Nashville to sort of live like that. And then I could come back. And I just thought because my boyfriend lived in Atlanta and no one would know him, that um, I could just keep living like that and just not mention it. And... He said to me, um, I, won't, I won't do that. Like, I won't be a part of a relationship where someone's in the closet. And in that moment, I said, okay, then I guess I'm going to start telling people. Who was the first person you told? Mm, back in Nashville? After that conversation with your boyfriend, yeah. Uh, I was actually riding with um, uh, Josh Osborne, who has become my most frequent collaborator and best friend, um, and uh, Trevor Rosen. And it was, I just can remember that room that day and just somehow us talking and talking and joking and they were joking about their wives. And I just said, I don't know if y'all know this, but I'm gay and I'm in a really serious relationship with this guy that lives in Atlanta and so I can relate to what you're saying because I'm also in a relationship and basically just saying, oh yeah, I hate when he does that and trying to just relate to their story. And they, you know, they said we knew because we've actually had a conversation with it about it before today, um, but it didn't matter. And in fact, they were the ones that just said, you know, we love you. We want to work with you. We, we want to meet Michael. We want you to meet our wives and let's all be family. And that's what we are. And um, so I, I went out of that room thinking I could tell anyone. And I didn't hide it anymore. And if it came up, the thing was everyone knew. Right. But I didn't know everyone knew and it didn't matter. And why it didn't matter was because it didn't matter to me anymore. And 
I realized that the shift that needed to come all along was from me. You know, I didn't go into the situation apologizing for being gay, which gave people power to judge me over it. It's, it's coming in and saying, if it comes up, you know, I have a boyfriend. And it's not, it's not how straight people have to lead a conversation. So I didn't lead the conversation that way, but I didn't change the pronoun when I talked about who I was with. And, uh, you know, nobody ever even missed a beat. It never meant anything to anyone. Really? Really. It's so weird. I don't know if it was, I mean, I don't know if times had changed. I do think time, there's a big part of it that, you know, that decade had made a big difference. Uh, but also, it just, I don't know. I never had, maybe, look, maybe when I left the room, I don't know. But I never felt it. With his double life behind him, Shane got deeper into the country music writing scene in Nashville. And eventually, he set his sights on one of the biggest stars in country music, Kenny Chesney. Shane had written a song he thought would be perfect for him, something a bit different that would push Chesney into new territory. So how do you go about pitching your song to him? What do you do? Well, there's through A&R at his label, through mm-hmm. his manager, through uh, his producer— they all take meetings to listen to songs, and it would just get pitched to all these different people. Describe would, one of those meetings. What do you do? You just show up with, like, a, a thumb drive? Then you showed up with um, a CD uh-huh. and at that time, and you had demos of the songs that you wanted to pitch, and the person would sit there for about 30 minutes and go through your songs with you sitting there. And what's, what are the expressions on their faces? Most of the time, they don't say anything. Uh-huh. They say, huh, I've never heard him do something like that, which means nothing. Uh-huh. But it took 11 different pitches, um, different ways that we tried to get it to him. And eventually, he did hear it. And when he heard it, he loved it. And uh, they called and said he was cutting it. I was actually in Vegas with my now husband. <laughs> I was in the mall, the fashion show mall in Vegas. I remember right where I was standing because when we've been there since then, we always go, remember when you were standing right there? Um, I started crying. It was just, you know. You started crying. Oh, I was just like, I cannot believe it. I mean, it meant that much to get a Kenny Chesney cut. Plus, I cry easy. Right. I'm getting that. (laughs) That's good. I'm I'm a pro pro crying. (laughs) Good. Yeah, I'm just imagining like you on on the phone in a mall in Las Vegas with tears coming down your face. It's no joke. And my husband thought someone had died. Oh, really? I was bent over, and he was like, oh, my God, what, what, what? And I was like, no, 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 it's good, it's good, it's good. And that was, that felt like the biggest moment ever. I mean, that, look, Leanne Womack recording it was a personal win, and I had needed that cut so bad to get me there, but Kenny Chesney, nobody could touch him. Uh-huh. Getting a song on a Kenny Chesney record for the field I was in, that was what everyone wanted. And what, what how's that one go? Can you sing that one? That's um, somewhere with you, laughing loud on a carnival ride, yeah. Driving around Saturday night, made fun of me, singing my song out a hotel room just to turn you It on. just was this shotgun phrasing that was real strange, and it was such a departure for Kenny. It was just something he had never done, and that seemed to sort of set my whole world on fire. That was my first number one, and that was in 2010, mm-hmm. and I've had 40 cents. 40 number ones? Yeah. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) So is the fact that you came out, is that linked to the success? A hundred percent, yes. That was the missing link for me. 
I couldn't fully create in an authentic manner until I was being authentic myself. That sounds kind of, uh, you know, big worded or something, but that is at the heart of it. I didn't have the confidence to be myself, which meant the music I was making was just an imitation because I was imitating. I was imitating what I thought a straight guy was supposed to be. So my songs were imitations of songs I'd heard before. Mm -hmm. You know, the songs aren't, you wouldn't know the songs were written by a straight guy, gay guy. That's not the point. The point is I came into my own skin and then in the writing room, I had the confidence to go, I like it like this, let's do this. Um, And I was very decisive and I did have a distinct sound. And I think that then what happened was people came along and said, we want a song like Somewhere With You. Mm-hmm. And I had them because that was a that was the way I wrote. And it felt different in the writing room after you after after you were out. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I wasn't. I didn't think about what I was going to say. That's another thing that made me better as a writer because I wasn't filtering anything or thinking, "Am I using the right pronoun, or what did I say last time I was here?" To make sure my story lines up, right? You know, huh? You you weren't distracted by the cover story. You could just focus on exactly. What you were doing. I could just. That's right. That's right. Today, Shane's success is a bit more behind the scenes than maybe he imagined when he was a teenager in Mineral Wells, Texas. But in 2014, he fulfilled one of his teenage dreams almost to a T when a song he co-wrote, Follow Your Arrow by Casey Musgraves, won the best new song at the Country Music Awards. Follow Your Arrow, Casey Musgraves, Brandy Clark, Shane McNally. Follow Your Arrow is a far cry from the booty call noir that Shane is known for. It's an uplifting anthem that encourages listeners to be true to themselves with lyrics like, kiss lots of boys or kiss lots of girls if that's something you're into. Oh my goodness! Do you guys realize what this means for country music? And after this, Shane made it to the CMAs several more times. He recently, in fact, tied the record for most songs nominated for Song of the Year. In addition to songwriting and producing country hits, Shane's a co-host on the new NBC reality show Songland, in which aspiring songwriters, like Shane once was, pitch their songs for a chance to have them recorded by pop stars like Will I Am and Megan Trainer. We created a playlist of Shane McAnally hits from artists like Kenny Chesney and Casey Musgraves. You can find it exclusively on Spotify at www.withoutfail.show/shane. Or if you're listening right now on Spotify, you can just click on the link in the show notes. Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Molly Messick, Rob Zipko, and Hiba Elorbani. It is edited by me and Devin Taylor. Mixing by Keegan Zemma and music by Bobby Lord. If you like Without Fail, please follow us. You can get every episode for free through Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Listener.